0: be here with you guys tonight. We're going to continue in our study in the book of Malachi in chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 6 tonight and go through 14 through the end of that first chapter uh, in a message titled, Where is My Honor? Before we do that, I just want to acknowledge tomorrow is Veterans Day, November 11th, and on behalf of all of us here at Living Truth, uh, if there are veterans, actually... If you are a veteran or were a veteran, I guess you could say, would you guys mind rising if there's anyone in here? Thank you. So thank you guys for your service. We know that uh, there was great sacrifice on your behalf and friends and family that uh, you left behind. And it's actually fitting even a little bit for the topic that we're going to discuss tonight and about how the worship of our lives should be a sacrifice. And how it should cost us something. So thank you for all of you who served. Church, would you pray before we dive in here? Lord, we just want to acknowledge the veterans of this great nation, Lord. Uh, those that have served you really out of a sense of, uh, of honor um, and, and commitment. Wanting to serve this nation. And maybe hopefully even you as well. Father, thank you for them. Thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy in this country, because of that service and the great sacrifice that so many have made. And Lord, we know that you have paid the ultimate sacrifice in the form of your son, Lord. And through you, we have the ultimate freedom, Father. As we share and uh, dive into your word tonight, Lord, I pray that you would be honored and you would be glorified. Father, would your words be spoken tonight, Lord, not mine, but yours. Would you be with uh, all the people here tonight, those watching online, uh, give them all ears to hear ears to hear what you would say to your church this evening in Jesus name we pray amen amen so i'll actually invite you guys to stand again be a little bit of an up and down motion here it's not a catholic church but <laughs> up and down we're going to be in malachi 1 beginning in verse 6 it says a son honors his father and a servant his master Then if I am a father, where is my honor? Where we get our title tonight. And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised you? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Will he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar." I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a grain offering that is going a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. You may be seated. Heavy chapter here sounds uh, like we're getting a little bit almost of the wrath of God coming out, talking about these defiled offerings that were being presented by the priests on behalf of the people. It opens up in verse 6, and it says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. And then if I am a father, where is my honor? The Hebrew word for honor is the word kavod. And it means honor or glory, and and literally it means a weight or a heaviness, but in this case, it's a good sense. It's something that you would uh, give weight to, that you would honor, something that you would uh, sort of respect and esteem highly. And Malachi's pointing out really the ingratitude of the priests, and then by extension, the Israelites here. He's pointing out two things, their dishonor and their lack of respect, or literally fear is, is the way you could translate this as well. So he says, where is my respect or where is my fear? Now, on Sunday, we were studying the third commandment in Exodus 20. And we looked at taking the the Lord's name in vain and how that's a command that we should not do that. And then we looked at the positive side of that command. What would that be? Well, that would be honoring the name of the Lord. And so we can see here that the actions of the priests were not honoring the name of the Lord. And the Lord obviously takes issue with that. And God is saying to them, if you believe that I am who I say that I am, why are you not showing me honor? As we looked last week in verses one through five, talking about Jacob and Esau, about God loving one and hating the other, uh, we looked at kind of the difference between those two and that it really wasn't a hatred per se, but that the love of the one was so great that it appeared that there was hate towards the other. And really, that kind of love is the love that we should have for God. God calls us to love him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. And he is to be the one that we love the most. And we could say, and by extension, that uh, the love that we have for him should almost appear that we hate everything else. That's the kind of love that we should have. And then from that love, respect and honor and glory are things that follow. How can you love someone and not give those things to them? And God refers to himself here as father and as master, he says to the people. And there's numerous verses we could go through on this that the Bible talks about God calling, um, calling himself our father. Just one of them, Isaiah 64:8 says, But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are potter, and all of us are the work of your hand. He is our father, and because of that, there is a respect that is due In Exodus 20, verse 12, we'll get to that command uh, shortly in a couple weeks, and that's the command to honor, what, your father and your mother, right? The same Hebrew word is used, kavod, something that you would give weight to, in a sense. So that same command, we're supposed to honor our father and mother. Why would we not honor our heavenly father? And that's what he's asking of us here. And then equally as important as showing this honor to the father is the respect or fear, the fear of the Lord. And we know that there's a healthy fear that we should have of the Lord, amen? That is something that we should have. Psalm 34, nine says, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. I wanna point out that at the time of the writing of Malachi, the Israelites had settled back into the land. Pastor Michael did a little overview for us last week. Uh, But they came out of the Babylonian captivity and they, they settled back in In 586, they were carried away. They had 70 years of captivity. 516, uh, they they came back. They were able to rebuild the temple. And then shortly after that, Ezra and Nehemiah were the ones that kind of led the charge in actually bringing all of the captives back into the the land of Israel, into Jerusalem. And they were actually able to introduce the sacrifices uh, and begin offering those again. And that was about uh, 458 BC when Ezra... And Nehemiah returned back with the exiles. In Ezra 835, it says that they again offered sacrifices to the Lord. That was the reinstitution of that. And then Malachi was written, if you remember, about 430 BC. So this is only about 20, maybe 25 years after they've come back from captivity. They're back into the land. They get to worship the Lord at his holy house. And we'll see that things kind of start to fall into disarray. And so really in a short time the people had forgotten who God was yet again. We've just been studying again through Exodus um, that the Israelites who have been taken out of captivity or slavery in Egypt and they were freed by the, by the Lord. He saved them. They crossed through the Red Sea and then they came into the wilderness. We know that eventually they ended up in the promised land. But here again at this time they had the same thing carried off into that Babylonian captivity. And He had rescued them again, but they so soon forgot what God had done for them, what he saved them from, and that he had come, uh, he had been faithful, he brought them back into the land. And they were honoring the Lord with the sacrifices and the proper worship. But in a short period of time, things began to wane a little bit. We can look back and we can easily criticize them and say, I can't believe that they would do that again. Don't don't they know? Well, we, of course, have the privilege of reading the entire Bible all the way through. They obviously had no New Testament at this time. But if we think that we are above that or we are immune to that, can I say that we are sadly mistaken? The Bible was written for our instruction. In 1 Corinthians 10, 11, we get a warning as to the unfaithfulness of Israel. 1 Corinthians ten eleven says, now these things, referring to multiple things that happened uh, in their course of, of history and travels, to them as an example and were written down as a warning for us on whom the fulfillment of the age has come. So the one who thinks he is standing firm should be careful lest he fall. So let us not think that we are above or immune to falling into some of the patterns that we're going to look in here tonight. I think a story uh, that certainly applies to us most recently was uh, March of 2020. Um, That may sound familiar for a little of you guys, but if you remember, the doors of this church were closed temporarily for a little bit of time. And we were at home. We were away. We didn't get to come to the house of the Lord and worship. Now, I'm not necessarily comparing this to exile, but hopefully you can see a little bit of the uh, similarity here, right? Where we were away, we weren't allowed to worship and when we came back months later, many months later, whatever that looked like for some of us, maybe we had a declaration. Maybe we said, no, I'm going to plant my flag this time, I'm going to stand firm, and I'm not going to take my faith and my freedoms for granted. But then if we look back, I'm speaking of myself, and this might ring true with some of you, that maybe some of those declarations we made, um, we're not doing the best at hanging on to those or living those out. Do we see that sometimes, again, we take for granted the beauty of what the Lord has been given us? We get complacent, right? It's so easy to forget who our God is, what he saved us from. And then, unfortunately, we have a tendency to neglect his commandments. And so again, here in Malachi, this was probably written when Ezra and Nehemiah were actually no longer around. So this was shortly after they had returned back. Um, Ezra had actually likely passed on at this point. There's no mention of him. Uh, anywhere in the Bible past this time frame, about 430 BC, just kind of falls off the face of the pages, I guess. I don't know what analogy you could make with the Bible. But he doesn't, uh, he doesn't appear. So most scholars believe that he's actually gone at this point. And Nehemiah is most likely away from Jerusalem. And we see in Nehemiah 13, if you would turn there, uh, back in your Bibles, about the first, I don't know, third of the way in, Nehemiah chapter 13 going to take a look at a little bit of the, the dating and stuff that was going on here so that we can help get a better understanding. So this was about 430 BC, somewhere in there, and in Nehemiah 13, verse 6, it says, but during all this time I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes of Babylon I had gone to the king. This is about 433 to 432. This is the way that we can date that in the records of who was king and and in his first year. It says, I came to Jerusalem and I learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. It was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order and they cleansed the rooms and I returned there the utensils of the house of God, with the grain offerings and frankincense, I also discovered the portions of the Levites. These are the tithes. The portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so they were forced. Excuse me, so they were forced to go each into his own field. So I reprimanded the officials. I said, "Why is the house of God forsaken?" Then I gathered them together and restored their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. Hold your place in Nehemiah back to Malachi. If we skip just two chapters ahead to Malachi 3, we're going to see that some of the things that Nehemiah was talking about that he discovered when he returned was exactly what Malachi was facing and addressing. Speaking specifically of the tithes in the storehouse, Malachi 3, 8 to 10 says, "'Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me.'" But you say, "'How have we robbed you?' "'In tithes and offerings.'" You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Back to Nehemiah 13, if you guys are that quick. In verse 23, it says, In those days I also thought that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, As for their children, half spoke the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. And he was accusing the Israelites of marrying foreign wives. Back to Malachi, chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakens and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. Now, these are just two very clear similarities that we have between these two books that I believe really give us a a great insight into what was happening. So you say, well, why is this important that we know the exact date and the time and whether Ezra was around and Nehemiah was there? Well, I think there's an important answer here. And that's the fact that these were two very godly men prophets, priests, right, that the Lord used to bring the Israelites back from captivity. They were kind of leading the the charge, and they were speaking the word of God. They were mighty men of God, and they were faithful to the calling that they had, and it was a big calling. But what happened? After they were gone, when the great mighty men of God were gone, some of the priests started neglecting their duties. And there's nothing new under the sun, when that happens, right? We know that much like Moses and Aaron and the Israelites, um, they did the same thing in Exodus 32 with the golden calf. Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the commandments from the Lord and receive all that, that he has, um, everything that he was gonna command the children of Israel. And they got tired of waiting and they said, we don't know what's happened to him. Uh, so Aaron, you think you, could, uh, you think you could fashion a God for us that we might be able to worship him? So what happened? Aaron maybe became complacent. And he gave in to the people, and he did what they want. And he did something that was abominable to the Lord. And then we know what happened when Moses came down the mountain. He came upon it, and he throws the commandments on the ground and shatters it because of the evil of the Israelites. So again, there's no difference of what happened throughout the Bible. And unfortunately, it's true in America today. It's kind of a sobering thing. And I would tell you, as I studied this for this last week, week and a half, uh, man, this, this gets you when we look at what the priests were doing As we look around our culture, I think we see, sadly, a a lack of strong, biblical, godly leaders. It's not my intent to name names or point fingers or do anything, because, again, we need to look to ourselves, of course. But sadly, when that happens, when the strong, mighty men of God, the ones that are supposed to be leading the people, fail to do their job or they, they neglect the call that was placed on them, it doesn't turn out so well. And so back to Malachi 1, we'll notice at the end of verse 6 that it addresses this priest specifically. He says, to you, O priest, you are not doing what I've commanded you. You priests, you have despised my name, it says. That means to hold in contempt or to treat with disdain. That's a pretty heavy, weighty word uh, that the Lord is using through Malachi. And again, as we talked about not taking the Lord's name in vain and how we should honor the name of the Lord, their actions here of what they were doing, were taking the name of the Lord in vain, in a sense. Now, there's two guilty parties here, but the blame really falls to the priests. The Lord is dealing with them specifically, and he addresses them because they have the responsibility to be holy. They have the responsibility to be obedient. They have the responsibility to be the leaders and examples of the flock, and they were neglecting the duty. The priests answer, and they say, how have we despised your name? They seem to be almost detached from what was happening. What do you mean? How have we despised your name? We're not doing anything wrong. Think one of two things. One, they knew exactly what they were doing, and they were just lying and trying to cover it up. Or two, I tend to lean towards this side, that they knew that they were actually so uh, complacent in what they were doing and offering these, these lame sacrifices that they didn't even realize it. They got so complacent in their sin that they didn't even view it as sin anymore. It had become a habit. And we too must be careful that we don't entertain sin in that way so that it doesn't become a comfortable habit that we are unaware of. Because sadly, it will sneak up on us before we even realize it. And then sometimes it'll take someone else or maybe even the Lord directly to point it out. And there will be some reprimanding and some chastisement. There will be hopefully love and, and grace as well because that's who our God is. In verse 7, he goes on to say, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. Verse 8, but when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? And so we see this argument, this interchange between the priests and the gods, you say, we say, how does that work? And Pastor Michael shared that last week and pointed out a few of the the different sections, this is one of them, uh, that this will appear in this letter. But it happens four or five times, actually. Each and every time, it actually has the same uh, pattern, if you will, the same structure. Briefly, those are, one, Malachi presenting a truth claim. In this case, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. Two, the audience, in this case the priest, either hypothetically or maybe even literally, responds to that truth claim. Some, uh, some sort of a rebuttal. How have we defiled you? Right? You say that we've uh, presented defiled food. How have we defiled you? The third part is Malachi answering the rebuttal and he reinstates his initial premise. He says the table of the Lord is to be despised. And then fourthly, Malachi presents additional evidence for the original claim. And you get almost this kind of a courtroom setting or this interrogation going on where these, these two sides are kind of battling it out. But Malachi is going to give even more overwhelming evidence. And he says, when you present the blind for a sacrifice, is that not evil? Are you not despising my name when you do what I don't say to do? And, of course, they're presenting this, uh, this food or this offering upon God's altar. And that's important. It's not any altar It's not their altar. It is the Lord's altar. And because it's the Lord's altar, he gets to make up the rules, right? He gets to dictate what happens. In Leviticus 22, the Lord lays it out. Leviticus 22, 17 to 24, the Lord speaks to Moses and he says, Speak to Aaron and to the sons and all of Israel and say to them, Any man of the house of Israel or of the aliens who presents his offering? I'll skip down to verse 19. He said, For you... Uh, to be accepted, it must be a male without defect, from the cattle, the sheep or the goats. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it will not be accepted for you. When a man offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or a free will offering, of the herd of the flock, excuse me, of the herd or of the flock, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Deuteronomy fifteen nineteen to 21, again continues this line of thought, where it says, if any animal has a defect, is lame or blind, or has any serious flaw, you must not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 17, 1, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep which has a blemish or any defect, for that is a detestable thing to the Lord your God. Those are just three, but there are others. It's clearly important if the Lord is stressing this over and over and over. We don't have time to go into the whole uh, order of the sacrifices and why they were uh, the, the way they were supposed to be. But for the sake of time, let's just say that we need to take God at face value and we need to obey his commands, correct? Whatever he says, we need to do. So God had demanded that this worship was done in a, in a specific and a perfect way. And he still does that today. He doesn't regard our feelings on how we want to worship. If we don't feel like doing what he says, uh, he doesn't really care. To be frank, he doesn't. We don't get to dictate worship on our terms. We don't come when we feel like it, where we feel like it. We don't worship the way we want to. We worship the way he commands because he is God. And our sincerity doesn't matter either. Just because we're sincere about what we worship, how we worship, when we want to worship, We are to worship him as he commands. We're to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so these specific standards that were set forth by God, it's actually the job of the priests to make sure that the people followed it. And they weren't doing that here. They were supposed to uphold the standards. They were supposed to instruct the people in what they should do. And so again, one party is being assigned the guilt here, and that is the priests. But the people were also complicit in what they were doing. The people were the ones that were bringing these sick, these lame animals, the unholy, the blemished sacrifices, ones that were blind or or maimed or maybe had a broken leg. There was something in them that that made them defiled, but the people brought them anyway. I don't know if they're trying to kind of pull the wool over God's eyes or what, but they were trying to pass this off as something better than it actually was. They were trying to say, yeah, this, you know, I, I, I might have this great, a prized winning lamb or or bull over here. And I kind of want to sacrifice it to you, but that's a big thing to give up. I have this little sick one over here. You can have him, Lord. I'll make him look pretty and dress him up, and I'm going to give him to you. And I'm going to pretend that what I'm giving you is actually my best. But in reality, it wasn't. So again, of the priest was a mediator between the God uh, of God and man. But then they were also the ones that were supposed to instruct in the law, in Nehemiah 8, Ezra, who is a priest, he reads aloud the book of the law when they came back into Jerusalem. And it says that Ezra the scribe uh, brought the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it from before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And him and the other priests that were there with him explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place, and they read from the book, from the law of God, translating it, or teaching it, you could render it, to give sense so that they understood the reading. Earlier we read that uh, the Israelites were, were marrying foreign women, and that only maybe half of the children um, even understood the language and the others didn't. So they were totally um, unskilled in what this law said and it was the job of the priests and they were, they were derelict in their, du- their duties, sadly, and what they were doing here. In Leviticus 10, it says that the priests were supposed to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, between the clean and the unclean, and they were to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord had spoken through Moses. And we can carry this out today and say that uh, our pastors are the modern day priests. They're the ones that are carrying out this role. In 2 Timothy 4.2, pastors are instructed, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. That is the job. And I would say in our time, we are in desperate need of more men that would do that. Stories come out all the time of pastors that are walking away from the ministry or are turning aside or placating to the people because of fame or status or whatever it would be. Pastors having great falls from whatever their their ministry was that they were involved in. And it's very sad to see that. Hope that we would pray that we would have more men of God that would stand up. How can we expect the masses to be obedient to God's word if we don't have the faithful teachers that are able to teach that word? So we continue on in verse 8. It says, why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? This word for governor is an Assyrian or maybe an Aramaic word and uh, at this time, when they had come back from captivity, they were still under the Persian empire, Persian rule. We know that Nehemiah had that same title of governor, but he was most likely away back in Persia at this time. So there would have been another governor that was appointed over them. And this person was, you know, responsible for the area. And the language in verse 8 seems to imply that this might have been someone that would have been in charge of uh, taxes and that the Israelites would have been paying taxes to the Persian government, much like they did in the New Testament times that, um, when Jesus says, you know, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but render to God what is to God. The people would have known that they would have needed uh, probably to pay taxes. And it would have been a horrible insult if they would have tried to pay a tax or to pay off a government official with such a sick or lame or defiled animal. They wouldn't have done that. Imagine if we had The privilege of uh, having a a distinguished governor or official come into our home, what would you present to them for a meal? What would you put before them? Hopefully, what you would put before them would be at least what you would give to God. Hopefully, you would give to God something better, not something worse. But that's what these, these priests were doing. And so it's kind of a sarcastic tone here. He says, why not offer it to your governor? Is he going to be pleased with you? Go ahead, see how that works out for you. Probably not well. There's probably some serious implications if you, uh, if you offended a governor of a province or something like that, right? In a commentary by J. Vernon McGee, as only he can so uh, boldly say, he says, I wonder if God's people today pay more in taxes than they give to God kind of a a sharp dagger to hear, but something interesting to think about. We know that many of us pay taxes, of course. That's our government system. That's the way that it's been set up. Uh, Some people seem to pay a lot more in taxes than others. I don't know, that's probably another story for another night. But uh, nevertheless, there is a system that's set up that we are told to follow, and hopefully all of us do that. We know that there's other obligations that we have too, financially. We uh, pay for cars and homes and food and all the necessities that we need uh, in life. But then what do we give to God? Hopefully it would be at least what we can maybe pay to the government, um, if not more. Hopefully we give him better than that. And it's not all about the value, and it's not all about dollars, of course, right? That's just one example. Um, 2 Corinthians 9, 7 uh, says that each one must do or give, in a sense, just as he has purposed in his heart, not begrudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So it's not about this obligation. We're not bound under this Old Testament law like they were at this time of Malachi. As I was studying, I was thinking, you know, Jesus sees everything that I drop in the offering box. Jesus sees every number that I write on my check. Kind of a sobering thought. Sometimes we think, oh, it's just between between us, right? Or maybe our our spouse. I'm gonna put whatever in the offering envelope and then I'm, I'm gonna give it. But the Lord sees that. In uh, Luke 21, he tells the story of uh, the widow's offering of of the two small copper coins. And it says, he, Jesus, looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And I imagined people coming and dropping their, their offerings in the box in the back and Jesus watching. So the rich were putting their gifts in. And then he saw a certain poor widow. And she came and she put in two small copper coins. And he said to them, truly I say to you, this widow put in more than all of them. For they all out of their surplus put into the offering. They gave a little bit of the leftovers. They gave what they could afford to give away. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. She was all in, as people say. She had committed everything. See, she was so trusting in the Lord. And so God is asking these priests here, so why do you think that I would accept something broken, something defective, something that isn't your best, something that didn't cost you anything? My wife and I are going to celebrate our anniversary, uh, five-year anniversary in just a couple weeks here. And most likely, I think she's listening, so now I'm going to have to follow through. Most likely, I will buy her a gift. I will buy her something nice because I love her, Right? And sort of that's what the culture tells us to do, and we're under a little bit of obligation. So anyway, hopefully I will go and I will buy her something nice. But let's say I was going to buy her some nice flowers or or some nice jewelry. But instead of going to the florist and buying her a really beautiful bouquet of flowers, I uh, maybe kind of forgot that it was our anniversary, and I'm rushing home and stop, you know, and I see some flowers maybe in someone's front yard, and I just go out and I clip them, you know. And they're kind of sad. You know, the petals have fallen off. Maybe there's even some weeds, dandelions or something. But I, I, I do my best to kind of pretty them up and I put them together and I take it home. Here, here honey, look what I got you. You know, happy anniversary. Um, how do you think that's going to go over? Probably not so well, right? What if I was to get her a nice necklace? I could go to the jewelry store and I could get her a, a diamond necklace. Or I could maybe go to a pawn shop and buy some costume jewelry, and then run home and then try to pawn it off. Well, that's a funny pun. I didn't even intend that. Pawn it off on her that it is the real deal, that this is a beautiful diamond necklace. Not going to happen. Why? Well, because my heart wasn't in it. My finances certainly weren't in it. Now, the outward act was there. I went home and I or I went out and I, I bought something or I did something for her. And on the outside, it might have looked pretty. But My heart wasn't in it. It's kind of a cliche thing that, you know, God God cares about the heart. It's all about the the heart. Kind of a cliche we have um, in the Christian church sometimes. But it is true, nevertheless, that God does care about the heart. So if my heart was in the wrong place, God's going to know. And much like what's going on here, the priests and the Israelites, their hearts were not in a good place. Not at all. And so I think looking at these sacrifices and and what they were giving, it should cause us to think about what we give to God. I gave that an analogy of my wife. Verse 8 talks about an analogy of, would you give that to your governor? What are the things that we would give to God? We wouldn't give something damaged or defective or invaluable to a family member. Why would I give that to God? And I asked myself this week, and I will pose the same question to you all, How have you made a sacrifice to God lately? I'm not talking about a physical offering, an animal that you brought onto an altar to be slaughtered and and burned. But what kind of a sacrifice have you made for God lately? Let me ask it in a different way. Do your acts of worship cost you anything? Not necessarily physically, tangible cost, But do your acts of worship cost you anything? We know that there's no temple worship anymore, of course, right? That doesn't exist. But we still are supposed to offer up sacrifices to God. We are commanded to do that. The sacrifices look a little different. And uh, the priesthood looks a little different as well. We as believers are now all priests. I mentioned earlier that we could say the pastors are are the modern-day priests. And indeed they are, and they're held to a higher standard um, they're, they're given a higher charge, a higher responsibility, and likewise, they'll be even judged to a higher standard. But we are all priests, and we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. First Peter 2.5 says, You, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That responsibility is to us today. Down in verse 9, it says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that, there's a responsibility, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And then Romans 12.1 tells us, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship. Our bodies are to be presented as a living and holy sacrifice. All that we are, all that we do is supposed to be a sacrifice to the Lord. So what should our sacrifices look like? Tangibly speaking, what, what are we supposed to do today? Well, we can give of our time. We can give of our physical service. We have many great servants in this fellowship that serve in a variety of ways back in the sound booth and some of our, our people leading praise tonight that are volunteers. We have people greeting at the door. We have people up in children's ministry as we speak. And that's just tonight, let alone what happens on a Sunday, let alone what happens with our evangelism team out during the week or with our meals ministry that goes and prepares meals for people that are maybe recovering from uh, a surgery or a stay in the hospital or, or someone that just, you know, maybe had a new baby or something. Love the meals ministry, by the way. I got to be the recipient when my wife and I had a baby. I thought, we're going to be okay. Well, well, we'll be fine. I'm the cook of the house. I got it covered. But I signed myself up and then all of a sudden people just started bringing food. I'm like, we need to have another baby just so that we can be benefit <laughs> the uh, the glorious riches of the meals ministry and be a recipient of that. But we can give of our our physical service in a variety of ways. And that's not just here in the walls of the church either. We can go and we can serve everywhere, in the community, in our workplaces, with our friends, with our family. And that should extend beyond the walls. We can also, of course, uh, make an offering with our finances or certain resources that we have. Certain people might have more, and God's designed it that way. And we can serve others through an act of worship. In Hebrews 13, 15 It says, through him, then, speaking of Jesus, let's continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips, praising his name. Us praising his name is a spiritual act of worship. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. God's not concerned with the Old Testament sacrifices anymore. I hope I I don't need to explain that. We are not under that covenant. We are not bound by that. That's not our duty. But doing good, sharing, offering up a praise to God, the fruit of our lips. In Philippians 4.18, Paul says, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you had sent, a financial gift he's speaking of, a fragrant aroma, an offering Excuse me, an acceptable sacrifice, well pleasing to God. So again, we can see that financial gifts is a way that we can um, that we can really serve God, that we can make a sacrifice and offer Him a spiritual form of worship. Proverbs three nine tells us to honor the Lord from our wealth and from the first of all of our produce. Key word is the first. We're to give God the best, Amen. Not the leftovers. Not to give Him. The seconds or the thirds or the fourths or the 99ths, We are supposed to give him the first of all that we have. Think back with me for a second to the old temple. Imagine that it was still existing and that we were commanded to go and that we were to worship and we were to present sacrifices there. When I think about that, you know, people didn't go to the temple to receive anything, um, Tangible. They didn't go for the feeling that they were going to get out of it. They came as a pure act of worship and obedience to the Lord. It was a command. They didn't go necessarily because they felt like it. They didn't really get anything out of it as far as uh, if I could say like like a warm fuzzy feeling. You know, a lot of times people come to church and say, "Well, I just want to go." I went to church today and I just feel good. That didn't happen back in the Old Testament when people went to offer sacrifices. Offering sacrifices isn't exactly the, uh, the most pleasant thing to witness or experience. Um, I did grow up in Norco and spent some time uh, raising animals in our backyard. And when it comes time to uh, slaughter them for food, it's not a pretty sight. Hope there's no vegetarians in the room. Sorry. Hope your dinner's all digested by now, too. But when they would come to the temple and they would offer sacrifices, it was it was a bloody sight. It was horrible. It was so many animals, hundreds if not thousands, depending on the day or the week or if there was a festival going on or not, would determine how many people were there and how many sacrifices were, were being offered. But it wasn't something that people did because they felt like it. Nobody necessarily really wanted to, to go and do that. And again, it wasn't about the worshiper, it wasn't about the person going to receive, it was about the worshipee, it was about God. It's about the one that was going to be receiving the worship. And so we come in today sometimes, we come into the church today, sometimes with the attitude of, well, what's in it for me? What am I going to get out of it? Am Am I going to feel good? And I say the church, hopefully that's not many of us here, but just The church at large, and and probably the the Western American church, uh, evangelical church, is one that really is closely tied with this kind of consumer mentality of people that come in wanting something. So what if we don't find what we're looking for? Ah, we can go on to the next church. We can go find somewhere else that'll give us that warm, fuzzy feeling we're looking for. There was only one temple, if you remember. There was only one place to go. God dictated, you're going to worship me on my terms. Verse 9 says, but now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us with such an offering on your part will he receive you kindly says the Lord of hosts there's some pretty good sarcasm here if we really kind of take a look and praise the Lord for sarcasm right I believe that's my spiritual gift it's uh, missing from the list in first Corinthians but when I did the test that was the one I scored the highest on got a couple chuckles, but there you go. I wasn't doing it for the chuckles. I, uh, I think of uh, the famous line of Dr. Phil sometimes when he's talking to someone, he goes, how's that working out for you? <laughs> it's kind of what I thought about when, when I read this. The Malachi speaking here says, oh, you're going to offer uh, these, these lame, defiled sacrifices, and then you expect that God's going to answer you? How's that working out for you? I don't think it's going to go so well. I was reading out of the NASB, but in the NLT, Verse nine actually reads like this. Go ahead, beg God to be merciful to you. But when you bring that kind of offering, why should he show you any favor at all? Asked the Lord of heaven's armies. I don't know what was going through their minds when they, they tried to do this. Again, maybe taking this kind of, this sick, lame animal and trying to doctor him up or you know, pass him off real quick as this, this maybe you know, prized sheep or, or goat, this perfect spotless uh, lamb or, or bull but I do know one thing, and that is that God sees all. God knows all. As we were in the time of prayer before the service tonight, uh, Ron, one of our elders, was sharing out of Psalm 139 about the ways that God knows us intricately, but specifically the way that he knows all the thoughts of our mind, the words before we even say them. He knows us so well. He knows the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. Verse 10 goes on to say, oh, that there were one among you that would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you here. And we see God's almost anger, this kind of righteous anger, begin to bubble up here a little bit more. And he's saying, it would be better that you just shut the door to the temple. Just shut it, just stop. I'd rather have you offer no sacrifices Than offer the kind of sacrifices that you are offering. It's detestable. You are profaning my name with what you're doing. Imagine that. Imagine the doors to the temple being shut. It says, I'd rather have no sacrifices than this lame excuse for an offering. And they were literally lame, actually. So, wow, again, didn't even think of that. God doesn't delight. In those types of sacrifices. He doesn't at all. Ones that are done out of ritual, ones that are not done with a pure heart. He says the following concerning sacrifices. Psalm 51, 16 to 17. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Proverbs 21, 3 to do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. Hosea 6.6. 6, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Jeremiah 7, 21 to 28 is a larger section. We'll just take a look at a couple verses. Verse 23 says, But I gave them this command. This is uh, God speaking of his commands to the Israelites. As a whole, I gave them this command. Obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that it may go well with you. And then Isaiah 1, verses 11 to 15. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me, your new moons and Sabbaths and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. The idea of offering an unblemished animal for sacrifice was the idea of offering up an animal without sin. Blemish or defect was seen as sin, and only unblemished animals were to be presented upon God's altar. The outward sins on the animals being presented were only a picture of the inward sins of the hearts of the people who offered them and the priests who sacrificed them. And as we think of the wording of verse 10 when God says, oh, that there were one of you that would shut the doors. I wish one of you would just stand up and stop what's going on I imagine God saying that to us today. What if God said to us today, shut the doors to the church because I'm not pleased with the sacrifices that are going on. And I think that that's the church at large maybe in in America. Again, I'm not trying to guilt anyone and please know that I had to really search deep and hard as I was preparing for this. My intent isn't to beat you over the head. I think Pastor Michael's going to do that when we get to Malachi 3. I think he's going to put everyone under a curse for not tithing. It's a little inside joke when he gets there. He asked if I wanted to teach, and I said, oh, no. I said, you don't want me to teach that one. But again, imagine God saying, shut the doors of the church. He says, you're worshiping me without glory or without honor or respect. Your sacrifice isn't acceptable. We know that in Revelation 2 and 3, God addresses the seven churches and in each case, he, he shares things that uh, displease him about what they were doing or how they were acting or behaving. And it caused me to really look and say, what would, what would God say about me, about the way I'm acting, about the way I'm behaving, things that I'm doing? What are the sacrifices that I am offering? And I had asked myself, what's behind my worship? And I'll ask, what's behind our worship? What's really the true heart of our worship? We can come in and and sing and we can listen to what's being taught, and we can learn, we can take it in, we can go and serve, we can give of our finances, we can do so many things on the outward expression, and yet still regard iniquity in our hearts. It's possible. I pray that wouldn't be the case, but it's possible. There are people that go through the ritual, they play church, they do church, but they regard iniquity in their heart. And God sees that and he's not pleased with it. I pray that we would be a people that don't look just merely at the outward expression of worship and what that looks like, but that we would regard truth and righteousness, that we would be obedient to God's word. And that would be our spiritual service of worship. Verse 11 says, from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations. And this is this great looking ahead to the coming kingdom of God that we see. It says, my name will be great among the nations, or the Gentiles, we could say. That includes us, praise the Lord. And it's through Jesus Christ, of course, that we, uh, that we attain that. It says, one day the name of the Lord will be worshipped across the earth by all people from every t- tribe and tongue and nation, and they shall give him pure worship, it says, a grain offering that is pure. Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11, um, just one of the verses says, for one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. God is saying to the Israelites and really more importantly to the priests, I think what he's saying here is, I don't need you. Sounds like kind of a harsh statement. What do you mean he doesn't need them? I don't need you. He says, You're my people. Yes. You are my, my chosen people, Israel. I've chosen you. I've been faithful to you. But I don't need you. He says, I don't need you to accomplish my will. He says, My name will be great among the nations. It's regardless of what, what they're doing. They're, they're offering these impure sacrifices. They're regarding iniquity in their heart. They're not doing what he commanded them. And he still says, my name will be great among the nations. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, but they weren't shining very brightly at this particular time. They were meant to um, showcase to the world who God is and get them to turn to him. But they weren't pointing people to God. But God is faithful. Amen. You know what God does? He doesn't write them off. Look ahead, Malachi 3, verses 6 to 7. Here's what the Lord desires for the priests. Chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, and probably here again referring specifically to the priests, are not consumed. You are not blotted out. I haven't done away with you. Even though you've done all of these things, I'm still faithful From the days of your fathers, verse 7, you have turned aside from my statutes. It's nothing new. And you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Again, God is faithful. He will always allow the wayward follower to come back to him. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? I didn't hear any amen. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, amen? Amen. There we go. Verse 12 says, but you are profaning it, speaking of God's name, you are profaning it in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, it is food to be despised. The profaning of the name of God is directly tied to the evil actions of the priests, to the acceptance of these offerings. They can't just simply say that they love God and they're going to call upon his name and then have no actions to back it up. Or they can't say that they love God and they're going to call upon his name and then have evil actions to back it up. Those things don't compute, do they? The actions will back up the words. The same goes for you and I today. And in this case, it doesn't really matter what they spoke from their mouths. They could say, how have we defiled you? How have we despised you? It doesn't matter. The Lord has seen, their action has shown, their heart behind their view of God. Jesus in Luke 6.46 sort of addresses this. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? You're gonna come and you're gonna offer sacrifices upon my altar that you know you shouldn't sacrifice. Lame, sick, defiled. And then you're gonna call upon my name as if everything's okay. And the Lord's not going to accept that. Verse 13 says, You also say, My, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts, referring to the the altar or the table of the Lord. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? The priests were weary of the ministry, they saw it as a burden. They saw it as something that they couldn't keep up with anymore, this tiresome work. Almost like they're trying to get out of the the guilt, right? Okay, the the Lord's caught us here, you know. Oh, well, it's so tiresome. You want us to come and do the offering all day long, day after day after day, offering after offering. They even say that they disdainfully sniff at it, it says in the New American Standard, or they sniff at it contemptuously. The New Living says, you turn up your noses at my commands. It's kind of a rough picture. I feel like it describes it well, but almost a picture of pride to say, I'm I'm better than this. I don't need to do this. I'm, I'm above this kind of work. This is too tiring. This is too wearisome for me. The reality is it was like that because their hearts weren't in it. Their hearts weren't in the right place, and therefore it became wearisome and a burden. How many of us... Maybe it's us or maybe we know someone else who has a job that they hate. Don't raise your hands. You might be sitting next to your employee or something like that. I can't raise my hand. So. <laughs> but how many might have a job? That's certainly not the case. But how many have a job that, that they hate? Most likely because their heart's not in it. They probably dread uh, waking up in the morning and going to work tomorrow. While they're at work, they can't wait to leave and, and go home. And while, while they're there, they hate it all day long because their heart's not in it. And that's most likely what was going on here. And I've heard from other pastors and even a little bit of my own experience that the work of the ministry is sometimes a little bit of a burden. Let me qualify what that is. You may have heard Pastor Michael share before that as someone enters into the ministry, maybe uh, specifically a pastor, that in that line of work, you will most likely experience the highest highs that a man will ever know And at the same time, you will probably experience the lowest lows that a man will ever know. And think about what pastors go through. They deal with memorial services and funerals and visiting sick in the hospital and counseling sessions. And there's many difficult things. There's many great joyous things, don't get me wrong. But there are things that could possibly lead to being seen as a burden if their heart wasn't in it. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist and pastor, speaking of this specific thing, he says, I certainly get tired in the work, but I never get tired of the work. Does that make sense? I get tired in the work. Sometimes as I'm I'm going through the the day-to-day, it gets a little tough, but I never get tired of the work. And he went on to say "What what a joy it has been to be able to serve in the ministry that way. And sadly, that's even crept in again into our modern day church. And there are churches that have come and said, well, people can't sit and listen to a sermon for an hour or however long we go for. We're gonna have to shorten it up so that we can get more people to come in. What can we do to, uh, to, to make it not a burden for, for the people? Because maybe the people don't wanna come anymore because it's just too hard to wake up and get to church on Sunday. It's just too hard to sit there for a whole hour and listen to the Bible. And yet, those same people probably go and watch a sporting event for two or three hours, but maybe not listen to the Word of God for an hour. And some pastors and some churches have uh, kind of kowtowed to society, to political correctness, to a variety of other things, and they've started to give the people what they want. I think that's what might have been happening here too with the priests. Again, the, the burden falls to them for not, um, not accepting the proper offerings and not teaching the Word of God to the people. But the people also became uh, uh, complicit, too. And they probably thought the same things. It doesn't expressly say, but imagine what they thought. If someone was offering up a lame or a blind sacrifice, at some point they probably had to say, it's just too much to give up my prized uh, animal. I I don't want to give the the unblemished one. It's just too hard. And I don't want to do it. It's wearisome. Again, in the Old Testament, when people were coming to worship in Jerusalem. There were those living in the surrounding area that would come and worship, but there were also three major feasts uh, throughout the year that all able-bodied Jews were expected to come and worship, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And during Passover, uh, of course, they would offer uh, a lamb each year. Uh, Pentecost and Tabernacles were uh, feasts that were around a a harvest, a spring and a fall harvest, and so people would bring their, their produce. But they would travel for many, many miles in caravans and they would go through remote parts of Israel. It's, it's kind of a, a dry, deserted area. Um, they would have to you know, be gone maybe for days or weeks at a time to go worship. They gave up a lot. They, they In a sense, they sacrificed a lot just to be able to go and present an offering in the first place. The people, they brought sacrifices with them, of course, but the whole journey was a sacrifice. There was really a lot in it, just to, as we could say maybe the modern analogy is, what does it take to get us to, to go to church? Well, I got to get up in the morning. and I live in Riverside, so I have a 15-minute drive on a Sunday morning, you know? That's like a big deal, right, to come that far. But back then, they were, they were so committed. They were, they were all into these things. And I'm sure there was a few that, you know, maybe grumbled and complained, you know, as they're in the caravans and... You know, if you haven't noticed, uh, the Jewish people are people that tend to complain uh, a little bit throughout Scripture. And that probably happened, but when they came, in Psalm 122, there's a psalm of ascent. And that was a, a psalm, one of the collection of psalms, commonly sung as they were going up to the temple to worship. And the opening verse of Psalm 122 says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. What a beautiful line. I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Glad is the Hebrew word sameach, and it can mean glad or joyous or to rejoice. It literally means to brighten up. I thought that's kind of a cool picture there. I thought, do I brighten up when someone says to me, let us go to the house of the Lord? Do you brighten up when someone says, let us go to the house of the Lord? To be able to worship God? to offer up spiritual sacrifices? I hope that's the case. I hope you don't see it as a burden. I hope you see it as a joyous occasion. In verse 14, as we wind down, it says, but cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but he sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations." Now, many of you know that a vow is a serious thing when a vow is taken or maybe a, a covenant, something that we should live up to. We should live up to our word. If someone vows an offering and says, okay, Lord, I'm going to give you my, um, the, the firstborn of my flocks. So we know that there were animals that were supposed to be set apart for service. The firstborn male was to be set apart. And they say, Lord, I'm going to give this to you. But then when it came down to it, when it came time to sacrifice, they kind of, rescinded that offer. Well, I said I was going to give you that one, but I got this other one that I'm going to give. And what does God say to someone that does such a thing? Because remember, in the beginning, we were talking about the priests, and they were the ones accepting the offering. But here in verse 14, he's addressing the people. Cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal or a detestable Animal to the Lord. God curses those that don't abide by his commands, at least here. I wish we had more time to talk about that. I don't want to take something out of context and say that whenever somebody doesn't obey God's command, he's going to curse them. No, that's not the case. But that is the case here. Why? Because he's holy, because he has a standard. He is the great king. His name is to be feared among all nations. It says, My name is feared among nations doesn't say it will be at this point. It says, my name is feared among all nations. And let us remember that this great God, this great king, whose name that will be feared, he doesn't sit on a, a high and, and lofty throne away from his people. He is close to his people. He doesn't have indifference towards us. He doesn't look down upon us and just, well, hope you guys figure it out Okay. Keep offering sacrifices the way I tell you to, and eh, maybe everything will work out all right. No, that's not what he says. What does God say? God knows what it costs to offer up a proper sacrifice because he offered up a proper sacrifice himself. He doesn't just have that expectation on us. He paved the way. God curses the profane, excuse me, God curses those who profane his name, sacrifice unblemished animals, because he knows what's involved. God didn't just create the sacrificial system. He did that, of course, but beyond that, he voluntarily submitted himself to that same system in humility. God himself offered up the perfect, unblemished, sacrifice lamb for us, for me, and for you. And that sacrifice put away the old covenant. It's no longer. We're not bound by that anymore. Praise the Lord. The animal sacrifices that could never take away the sins of the people, that were offered day after day continually, but they could never save us. But with the sacrifice of the perfect lamb, the Lord ushered in a new covenant by which we are saved completely. And we are not required to pay up those sacrifices anymore. We're not under that law. We're not under that command to be able to do that. But when we think about what God has offered up for us, when we think about the sacrifice that he made on our behalf, how could we not want to pay him back in humble appreciation? How could we not offer up those sacrifices of spiritual service to the Lord? Let us pray. Father, as we think about history and about what you set into motion. As we think about the systems that you came up with, it's, it's really a beautiful picture, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to get to know and understand and study a little deeper um, what you have created, why you call us to be holy and offer up sacrifices in a particular way. But most importantly, Lord, we are thankful that you offered up the greatest sacrifice of all. You know our our weakness. You know everything about us, Lord. And you sympathize with us. You are a great high priest who offered up your son as a sacrifice once and for all, Lord. That we might be saved. That all those who would believe in your son, Jesus Christ, would have eternal life. Thank you for putting an end to that system, for creating a new and better way by which we get to enter in through the veil Into communion and into fellowship with you. Lord, may we seek to offer up the true spiritual sacrifices that you would require of us, Lord. But we understand that apart from you, we can do nothing. So we ask for your help by the power of your Spirit. Give us the strength that we need. Lord, I I do pray if there's anyone that uh, doesn't know you or hasn't put their trust in you, Lord, that they would, that they would have an understanding of how much you love them, that you would sacrifice your own son for them. You love them that much. Just even for one person, one individual, you would have done that, Lord. May they turn to you. May they trust in you. And may the rest of us, Lord, as believers, um, seek to love you better and to worship you better. Lord, we know that you don't require perfection. That's not your standard. But help us to do our best, Lord. Help us to worship you as you would want us to, Father. Thank you for this night. Be with us all, Lord, as we depart from here. In Jesus' name we pray.